It's four o'clock now. Good morning. If you've just joined us, let's talk what's happening in the world of social media. Trending news right now. Joining us is a publisher at 013 News and social commentator Pumelelo Mashifani to discuss uh, what's happening in terms of the past. I guess we'll look at the whole weekend because it's Monday, 72 hours in the world of uh, social media. Pumelelo, thank you for joining us. Happy Monday. Good morning, Asanda. Happy Monday to you too and the listeners. How's the weekend been? Oh, it's been very quiet, relaxed. I seldom left my neighborhood. And I was, uh, yeah, uh, I enjoyed it quite thoroughly. Looking forward to the last day of relaxing before we head back into that week. And we don't have a public holiday until six weeks time. Yeah, so yeah, I think everybody was just milking it for all it's worth. I mean, we're talking our workers' day in terms of do you love your job and why I think you've said you definitely love yours. You uh, got into this career and um, tell us how you feel about it. And, and did you ever think that you would be what you are now? Yeah, um, I absolutely love my job. I think journalism was a calling for me. Um, I started out when I was 13 years old as a school correspondent for the local newspaper. And um, it's been a joyride ever since. Um, and uh, it came to fruition and me establishing my own publication and uh, failing it for the past five years um, has really been uh, uh, something that uh, I regard as a blessing. Mm, it is a, when what you love becomes your, your life, basically. It's not just work, it's it's alignment to that purpose. It, it's a huge blessing. Workers' Day then yesterday, uh, the President, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, addressing a public rally, and uh, he was booed by some unhappy Sibanye Stillwater employees. He, was uh, having to be ushered away by his uh, bodyguard. Even the police had to intervene. Tell us more. Yeah, um, a really interesting uh, series of events unfolded in uh, Rustenburg. Um, firstly, the event was delayed for a number of hours. It was due to start at 9 a.m. and only really got underway around uh, half past one, two. Um, and then that happened uh, with uh, the workers expressing their dissatisfaction. Uh, firstly, the mine workers about uh, the ongoing strike at Sibania Stillwater, where they're asking for a thousand rand salary increase, and the employer is just not budging. And adding that fuel to the fire is that the CEO of Still or Sibania Stillwater uh, gave himself a nice, handsome. Uh, payout of 300 million rand, which has undoubtedly complicated things um, mm. in the, at the negotiating table. And then these workers came, obviously, just uh, expressing their dissatisfaction, uh, leaving the grandstands and marching onto the field uh, towards the stage. Uh, the president tried to adjust them, but uh, he was met uh, with a lot of fury and people chanting, You must go, you must go. And uh, the crowd really getting out of hand there with police and the president's protectors had to intervene uh, and escorted them out and bundled them into a police in Yala and drove them out of the stadium. Um, so that that was uh, yeah quite something else.
quite some drama there. And the wage strike mm-hmm. at Sibanya Stillwater is in its second month now. And as you say, it's the issue again that makes it a bit more controversial is the CEO Neil Froneman's package in 2021 of 300 million rand. Does it look like there's going to be any, I don't know if we can, I mean, these wage strikes, it, it, it's, I don't know that there's always uh, success on the side of workers, but does it look like there'll be some kind of a compromise if not success? Um, it doesn't look like it, uh, given the events of uh, yesterday. Um, we've actually seen um, how serious this has become in that uh, we've never seen these two rival unions of NUM and AMCO, um, you know, joining hands uh, since that uh, uh, Mark Anna uh, strike in 2012. I've uh, never seen them uh, being together in, 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 in a common cause until until now, and I think one of the highlights yesterday that uh, the journalists uh, highlighted was that uh, uh, the president actually said Viva Amku uh, as he was trying to address the crowd, which is something that uh, we, we know that uh, Amku is a, is a union that uh, grew out of the NUM uh, in 2012 and becoming really disruptive in the mining industry. And, and the president really never, never really been um, uh, akin to them, but um, those those events are really saying to us that uh, nothing really is going to happen in terms of that strike because of the deadlock that we we see um, happening for the past week or so. And what does this highlight in terms of what it means for those workers who are not represented by unions? We know not all workers are part of unionizations, uh, maybe about 30% less than uh, are part of unions. When these kinds of uh, issues take place, where there are uh, grievances around wages? Yeah, that report coming out of Sunda saying that uh, actually 70% of workers in South Africa are not unionized. Um, and, and what that simply means is that uh, they don't speak in a collective voice uh, when mm. bargaining with the employer. And uh, on the converse, it actually means that uh, South African employers pretty much do as they please uh, uh, in terms of uh, wage payments. And that's why we see uh, the glaring income gap between executives and the working class. Where, like we were talking about now, somebody can pay themselves 300 million rand, mm. uh, but a worker who is going into the belly of the earth, uh, risking everything they have, including dread disease later on in life, uh, can't even negotiate a measly 1,000 rand, uh, despite the boom in commodity prices, despite um, you know all the factors indicating that uh, uh, the big mining companies are reaping titanic profits. Uh, but the workers don't see that uh, coming to fruition. Mm. At uh, the uh, day, Workers' Day rally yesterday, there was also Zingi Swa Losi, who is COSATU president. Of course, they would have to be there. And uh, she also tried to address the unhappy crowd. That didn't really work because, you know, the president still had to be ushered out there uh, after he was being booed. Does this send a sort of a message that workers are starting or are really getting into the belief that they are in charge? Yeah, I think workers expressing their ultimate uh, dissatisfaction yesterday at their leaders, saying that uh, their leaders are not actually helping them, uh, particularly the trade union leaders seem to be 
in cahoots with uh, the employer and and they're not bringing their issues to the fore. One of or the other issues, there was the mine workers' issues, mm. and then there was the how workers who were also uh, quite disruptive in the event, and they are largely made up of uh, the president's employees, which are government employees. And they said since 2018, they have not received any increment. Uh, and and, and uh, that's why they also engaged in booing the president and saying that uh, they're not getting any increase, but inflation has risen so much. The cost of fuel, uh, cooking oil costs 291 rand for a 5-liter can, and it's, it's totally untenable. Yeah. Was this the first in Ramaphosa's presidency where he was uh, forced to leave a public address? Well, um, yeah, I think this is uh, the the, the first one, which is kind of... uh, But uh, there's been a series of events where the president has had to be uh, taken out of of events. We know that there's been a couple of ANC events. There was a gala dinner where the lights went out, uh, there was load shedding, um, and the president had to be taken out. Uh, There was another uh, ANC event where... The president just uh, his guards came and asked him to stand up, and they left him, and there was never really much of an explanation. Uh, but yeah, really a telling event, uh, given that it's an elective year of the ANC, where the party goes to conference and uh, the workers expressing uh, their dissatisfaction. We know that in 2015, the same thing happened to the former president of the ANC, Jacob Zuma, when he tried to just. Mm-hmm. Uh, the workers uh, rally, workers they rally, and he was rejected by the workers. And uh, one can look back in hindsight and say that was undoubtedly um, the changeover point where where things started to go downwards in terms of his popularity or um, him maintaining his 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 uh, popularity in terms of leading uh, the 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 ANC, which is very much in alliance with, with the workers through its tripartite alliance with Kosato and the SACP. Mm. And as you mentioned, Jacob Zuma there, let's talk about Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, who's released the four-part uh, of the state capture report, which shows that the former president, Jacob Zuma, was central to the capture of ESCOM. Tell us more here also. Yeah, um, that, that the, the fourth and last installment of the state capture report coming out uh, last week, I think on Thursday or Friday, and uh, it uh, I saw weekend newspapers this week, this weekend also dominating headlines with uh, the former president saying that uh, exactly he was part of uh, uh, facilitating the capture at Eskom, but. Uh, uh, a former Eskom CEO, who is also mentioned uh, alongside uh, this statement, uh, coming out guns blazing, saying that uh, while this basically rubbishing the Chief Justice's report and saying that uh, it's incoherent with the facts uh, because uh, some of the findings he makes were not even part of the commission. He said uh, he's, he's, the Chief Justice recommended that uh, he be criminally investigated over a Buckfontein coal supply contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's saying that, uh, well, he was suspended at the time that contract was signed, so how can he be held accountable? But further than that, when he appeared nine times at the State Capture Commission, not once was he asked a single question about that contract, but yet 
findings we made uh, against him about that. Um, he also making another controversial statement on Twitter saying that, uh, well, South Africans should uh, thank the Guptas uh, because if, according to Chief Justice Zondo, they were running the, uh, the power utility uh, during those times, uh, then they were able to sort out the load shedding issues and South Africans were not suffering through load shedding. Of course, quite a sarcastic statement there, but uh, uh, him just trying to, uh, uh, I suppose, keep his case. And also the chief saying that the ANC government should be ashamed that this happened under its watch, this capture of uh, ESCOM. What do you make of those sentiments? Yeah, um, uh, the ANC president, uh, I think about two years ago, writing an open letter to South Africans, uh, uh, really admitting the guilt on the part of his party back then, calling the ANC uh, corruption accused number one. And I think uh, that narrative permeating into into the state capture report and, and, and actually uh, uh, corroborating that statement by the president saying that uh, the ANC actually uh, took part and, and facilitated the great um, part of of uh, the state capture, particularly at power utility ESCOM. And uh, the DA coming out also saying that uh, uh, this is the result that we're, we're having this, this, this load shedding and, and, and the problems we have with uh, power supply on the national grid. Let's talk uh, hashtag Dubai. Uh, there's a conversation that was happening on the socials about how some people have been making money in Dubai. And we've known, I mean, quite a lot of Africans moving over that side and making a life for themselves there. What sparked this particular debate or a conversation now? Sure. Yeah, that's that's been um, uh, a very distasteful topic. Uh, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, going on, on, on social media, but basically a video... Uh, coming out and circulating since around uh, last week, uh, Wednesday or Thursday, of a an, an Af- African woman who was a, who appears to be engaging in something called crocophilia, hmm. uh, and uh, to just break that down is when um, people engage in sexual intercourse, but during that sexual intercourse, uh, the one person. Um, excretes uh, their bodily waste on the other person. Um, and I don't know, some people seem to say this, uh, people derive pleasure out of it, and other people saying that uh, that is a very dark ritual mm. um, that uh, is being engaged in. But that really blowing up on Twitter and on, on, on Facebook of people saying um, slay queens uh, are going to Dubai um to engage in such acts just so that they could come back and buy uh, some fancy handbags and drink champagne. Mm. Why the focus on Dubai, specifically on this issue of crocophilia? Is it something that is common there more than other parts of the world? Um, From what I gather, it seems to be something that is quite common in that part of the world uh, uh, and and, and nowhere else in the world. But... um, it's it's not only that other people are testing to say um, I think this came out in in, in, in a podcast by Mac G where they were discussing that uh, some of the things that African ladies go to Dubai and get engaged in uh, something like having intercourse 
or oral sex with camels or dogs or for the pleasure of uh, these people who then pay them uh, quite handsomely. One person saying that uh, you can earn around $10,000 just for a single trip to Dubai. Um, And and we know that if you came back with $10,000, it's quite a handsome amount of money here in South Africa. Well, it is an attractive destination, and I'm wondering if maybe we are just not mixing things that don't go together. The fact that there are people who travel to Dubai and a lot of them uh, coming from South Africa and now linking it to what they could be doing when they go over there. I mean, the city is, you know, it's known for luxury shopping. It's got a nightlife scene. It's got a beautiful architecture. We know that Burj Khalifa, uh, that, uh, I guess, iconic building is there as well. Are we not mixing things maybe that don't go together here? Yeah? Maybe we're not making sense of things and we're just trying to find of a reason of why, as you say, slay queens or people who are seeming seemingly doing well in life and have money are going to Dubai. Yeah, absolutely. Dubai is uh, becoming the financial capital of the world, the financial business capital of the world. Um, and uh, we know a lot of South Africans are doing business in Dubai, a lot of Skilled South Africans are being uh, headhunted in Dubai mm. in various industries, from defence to networks and telecoms to um, all sorts of other things. Business people are are locating themselves in Dubai because it's become the trading port of the world, where uh, the world seemingly, you know, um, reaches out to to the rest of the world through Dubai. And um, I think uh, this this conversation that's been raging on has been largely about uh, the slay queens and not really about everybody else who goes to Dubai um, uh, to go about their business. Uh, so so I think in, in that sense, the, the conversation that's been going on on social media has been about that particular element and not really about uh, the professionals and the uh, economic opportunities or legitimate economic opportunities um, that exist in Dubai. Very interesting one. Then it's not the first time. I think maybe about three years ago or two years ago, these, I guess we can call them ahem-hem or rumors came up that there could be this uh, practice of crocophilia there. So it's, it's very interesting to me. Um, let's talk uh, media. The South African media has come under fire or attack on uh, Twitter also. And uh, it's being told to go to hell or go jump. And some are saying that uh, as the media, we are defending President Cyril Ramaphosa and foreign nationals. Where did this start? I know it's become a bit difficult at times to trace where Twitter trend originated. But what inspired these sentiments now on Twitter? Well, what I think um, inspired these sentiments is... Uh, has been uh, the Put South Africa First movement. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Put South Africa First movement. And I think uh, when I try to research and and find uh, sort of where the oasis of of this hashtag came from, um, there was was a lady, Valencia Matai, who tweeted that, uh, you know, in the the commotion that occurred in Gippsland a couple of weeks ago, her cousin was actually killed by foreign nationals, and SA Media had nothing to say about it, but then uh, they were quick to jump uh, to make a huge brahaha 
about uh, the death of Elvis Nati, who was a foreign national. And I think it snowballed from there with people saying, you know, um, SA media fuels this narrative of xenophobia when South Africans are only um, speaking about issues that affect them and which they see in their lived realities. And then um, that that sort of carried on to saying that the, the media is very much complicit in in suppressing or yeah suppressing the voice of particularly Black South Africans and in their cries of what's happening, the media doesn't cover uh, what what South Africans are actually saying, but chooses a particular narrative and hammers down on that narrative until uh, every other voice is drowned out. Um, and, and, and that, I suppose, then said unto the president, uh, there was a conversation around the president saying that uh, ordinary people seem to not be impressed or satisfied with the president and, and what he's doing in his cabinet, but you'll never hear it from, from the newspapers. Uh, if you read the Sunday newspapers, they all got the same stories uh, going. They even sort of write in the same sort of way. And um, I think if you understand the news cycle in South Africa, you would know um, how this works and why we find ourselves in this conundrum. I think this is something I feel strongly about, uh, Asanda, and it's why I went out and started my own publication, because at some point um, I couldn't believe in what I'm doing um, at sort of the mainstream level, you mm. know, working as a journalist in the mainstream media. Uh, you come up with a story that you think is a very unique story, but then it'll be shut down because it's not going to sell head or the headline is not going to sell. Um, so I think uh, uh, people expressing that dissatisfaction, saying that uh, the media is complicit in cajoling South Africans into into the repressive state they find themselves in. And I mean, there is, uh, you know, as you say, we, we, there's a big role that uh, journalists play. And I, I believe that it becomes a responsibility more than a job, really. I, I don't think... And, and I know, I mean, with colleagues as well who are journalists, that a lot of us get into the space as part of a service. You become a, a servant of the people to give them the info, to spark the debates that need to be sparked, to, you know, encourage dialogue that helps one think out of the box or whatever it is, whether you're inspiring people or educating people. But has it become a move now away from, in terms of journalism, away from its founding principles you know, of objectivity? Have we forgotten about why journalism is journalism? Yeah, I think uh, journalism is fueled a lot by money um, these days. Uh, you know, um, there's been talks of uh, uh, brown envelope journalism. There's been talk of, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago, I think it, no, a year ago, the Tumamina Media Group uh, something that blew up and and and, and that sort of uh, became caught by wildfire uh, with people saying that uh, yeah um, Stratcom is still uh, in place in South Africa because um, how does how does how do how do journalists coalesce around a single group and formulate one narrative when they should be actually looking at a story and finding many different angles. And I think I think I find this to be true um, in my profession as a journalism. I go to and attend a political conference and you read the stories the following day and they're all the same, Asanda. 
you know, I had, I had to, I, I, I covered the, the Bumalanga ANC conference because, you know, our publication is kind of the authority on politics in, in the province and, and a lot of colleagues from Joburg, uh, you know, interact with us uh, because none of the mainstream newspapers have a bureau in Bumalang. Um, um, Sebastian City Press uh, has have a, have a bureau chief in Bumalang. And, and a lot of colleagues were asking me, but why haven't you published something about the conference? And I said, but everybody's there doing, publishing the same story. Mm. And you'll have to wait a couple of days for us because we're writing a different story and we're still researching the story. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's one thing, is that we can't go to a press conference and all come out with the same story mm. uh, because our publications or our outlets don't have the same outlook. I can't be an SAFM journalist and report on the same issues as the Metro or, or somebody who's, who's, who's covering uh, for a commercial entity, for an example, because mm. our interests are not the same. As a public service journalist uh, at the SAPC, your interests are not the same as somebody who's in a commercial newspaper. But um, I think... Um, we we have a large task ahead of us as media practitioners to really clean out the image that the media has in the face of of ordinary South Africans because these conversations have been going on for quite a while, um, Asanda, and yeah. it, it's not just this this hashtag. I think this hashtag is is, is one pimple that's come out, but uh, yeah, we do have sort of an acne problem around journalism. And one wonders, you know, uh, in terms of the umbrella of media, we know that things have expanded definitely with the times uh, moving and technology. And uh, I mean, you, as you say, I'm sure a few years ago, maybe our counterparts would have never thought of opening their own publications. Here we are now where we are able to do that. But then on the other hand, there's also the, the podcasts that are coming up and not really having much guidance in terms of what is ethical and not ethical. So the issue of disinformation then, is it on the rise because of the fact that we've now technologized or well moved advanced technologi- technologically and are taking a, a use of these opportunities? Yeah, I think this is um, another problem I have with sort of the industry that we're, we're not open enough to change. Um in such a way that we get overtaken by things. Um, if you look at the state of online media or online journalism in South Africa and how slow-paced it has progressed at, and what happened when we went into a hot lockdown and suddenly everybody couldn't print newspapers, I mean, everybody didn't know what to do. Um, and uh, we found ourselves in a very unique position because, hey, Five years ago, we thought of this thing and we implemented it and we were fully digital in online publication that didn't rely on printing newspapers. But um, the, the, the conversations that are coming up uh, because of the opportunities created by electronic media, which cut, cuts um, you know, media production costs by 90%. You know, if you take something and you put it online, you're spending 10% of what you need um, in the traditional sense mm-hmm. of, of if you were to do the same thing in, in the traditional, whether it be podcasting versus broadcast medium, whether it be print versus online. Um, you know, we, we're not moving fast enough, and therefore 
because of the opportunities presented by technology, uh, people are going out there and doing their own thing. Mm. I mean, I had to I had to struggle with uh, the Association of Independent Publishers for a good three four years for them to accredit me as an as a, as a publisher because they didn't have the framework uh, for online publishers. Mm. They said they simply said, "Well, we can't monitor you because we use ABC as a monitoring tool." And I had to say to them, "But Google monitors every website and can give you all the statistics of readership and and and." And it it was really a grueling process for us to get to a point where they wrote me a letter and say, "Yes, we credit you, but even then, I'm still the only one who's there, and I'm still having to fight battles." around issues of getting advertising revenue because the media buyers are not there yet. They mm. still look at the newspapers and somebody's willing to spend 45,000 rand on an advert in the newspaper, but not 6,000 rand to place it on an online publication that is immediate, that goes out immediately and uh, can actually tell you in terms of you know, pinpoint accuracy how many people saw that advert. Uh, the industry is still very okay with relying on how many papers you printed at the printers without, uh, you know, any form of method or or to, to test how far do those newspapers reach. Uh, some of these newspapers never reach their readers. They get dumped in places mm. where they get used to make fire or or something else, and they don't actually read the readers. But the industry is very set in stone in terms of that. Talking journalism, uh, Trevor Noah at uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which was hosted by President Joe Biden, made fun of uh, journalists. Um, I don't know if we should be offended or we just just take it as he's a comedian, this is what he's going to do anyway, make fun of somebody, and this time the target was journalists. Yeah, I think it was a journalist's uh, uh, dinner, uh, and... Uh, uh, the, 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 the prime suspects would have been journalists. But I think, uh, you know, Trevor Noah, in classic Trevor Noah style, um, you know, went and took a dig at everybody uh, who was in the room, including uh, the United States President Joe Biden. Of course, White House uh, correspondents that are uh, coming back after a two-year hiatus in, due to the COVID-19 mm-hmm. um a pandemic across the world, and uh, and and of course that uh, being a very very unique juxtapose to in terms of the the two administrations of Donald Trump and and Joe Biden, because the last time uh, the White House Correspondents Dinner was held, uh, it was during the Trump years, and we know that the frugal relationship he had uh, with journalists and, and and the mainstream media. Uh, and, and this was, was the first time since uh, the, the Trump era that it had been hosted under the Biden era. And um, in classic Trevor Noah style, um, he really took it a notch up uh, and, you know, made fun of all sorts of, of things uh, in the industry. But I think that's what comedians do, Arthur. They they sort of mm. hold up a very, very br- brutal mirror to ourselves where we... We, even us as journalists, we say we hold up the mirror to society, but yeah. uh, uh, comedians sort of do it with uh, uh, an amount of of rawness that uh, sometimes is hard to swallow. 
uh, for searching people. And uh, Trevor Noah also highlighting then to those uh, members of the media that were in uh, attendance that they should remember how lucky they are to expose the truth or ask difficult questions without a fear of uh, retaliation. I guess that also touches on what we're saying. This is, it becomes almost like a calling to be a journalist. It's a service to the people. Yes, absolutely. I think um, him trying to paint a picture that, uh, you know, um, they should be very, very um, honored uh, to live in a democracy like America where they, they they continue to to say anything that that should be said uh, without the fear of reprisal. We know that uh, journalists are increasingly under attack uh, in in many parts of the world, um, mm. including um, what's happening in in, in the Russia Ukraine conflict. We know that journalism is come under the spotlight, media censorship, the issue of Russia today being banned. Those are all issues that speak to the voice of the media, um, always being under a constant threat by those in power uh, of being suppressed. And, and Trevor now really highlighting that, that, that despite everything that they might think is wrong, um, in America they should be grateful that they, they can still tell their stories uh, with, with the open voice that they can. An interesting message just coming through on our WhatsApp from Alex in Standerton, who's saying journalists can't be objective as they look to be government spokespersons. I'm saying it's interesting because we have seen this when people are in the media space and they move on to be spokespersons in government departments. Do you think that makes that uh, question then come up of was this the original plan for somebody to be a spokesperson and they thought that journalism would be a springboard there and therefore was the journalist... Uh, taking the journalism seriously or they were always going to go in the angle of taking a side if they're going to end up being a government spokesperson anyway? Yeah, um, I think uh, this is the problem we have in terms of um, opportunities in journalism, opportunities for growth, um, uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the salaries that journalists uh, earn. Um, I mean, we have the same problem with policemen, we have the same problem with teachers, and sort of every other essential service that is is really a service to society um, and that we're, we're not paid enough. And therefore, you reach a point in your life um, where you say, life needs to progress to a certain point. Uh, you know, I need to buy a car. I can't freelance. Yeah. For the rest of my life, I need stability, I need a job, I need to take my children through school, my children are coming of age, I need to take them to university, and the journalist's salary just doesn't cut it. If you're a journalist and you're all about the camera and your microphone and your pen and paper, the reality is that it's not uh, economically lucrative. And, and this is why we see that this aspiration into um, um, government communications because mm. uh, the class ceiling is so close uh, in journalism uh, for you to expand into the corporate side and really grow and a lot of journalists seldom make it past that ceiling and therefore government is becoming the most accessible uh, uh, area of growth uh, because uh, while the corporate side of communication relies heavily on 
being public relations people and not so much a journalist mm. uh, because it's not, companies have the money to spend on public relations, whereas government uh, sort of looks for people who are, uh, you know, really, readily all-rounded, uh, you know, can produce the media statements, can write in an effective way. And that becomes a good value proposition for you when you're a journalist and you've made a name for yourself to say that I can, I can have this to contribute. And we always know that uh, politicians are always looking for spin doctors uh, who can mm-hmm. manage uh, everything that they do uh, because they, most of what they do will always uh, attract media attention and they always need somebody who's versatile enough to be able to. And I think it's something that we should we should really look at, um, you know, with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic being, being sort of out of the way and being able to coalesce and congregate again, I think journalism is, uh, journalists need to establish a forum uh, where they can where they can really have conversations, tough conversations uh, uh, with yeah. themselves about how to make the industry or to insulate the industry from such uh, factors that seek to isolate it in society. All right, let's leave it there on this Monday. Thanks again for joining us and have a, a great one, the rest of it. Thank you. Thank you so much and, uh, to you guys in the studio as well. And have a great week ahead. Thanks so much. Uh, publisher of uh, 013 News and social commentator Mpumelelo Mashifani joining us on our trending news.